0: If you are looking for the PayPal version of Bradstone's The Everything Store, then the book you are seeking is The Founders, a new book by Jimmy Sony. Elon Musk's comments about banks not being innovators. Reid Hoffman's role in asking the right questions to Max Levchin, giving way to PayPal's primary product. The mixing of .com and Confinity. Peter Thiel. The Reluctant CEO and The Palace Coup, and then The Love-Hate Relationship Between eBay and PayPal. This book is packed with stories behind the bigger stories from the pre-startup days of PayPal to its IPO. Our interview with Jimmy Sony of the Founders is going to be fun, and it's going to go fast. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Guys, when you read this book, don't do it. I'm serious. Don't skip the introduction like so many readers do. Uh, This introduction sets the stage for the rest of the book in The Founders, and it describes the three-hour conversation Jimmy Sony had with Elon Musk, which I'm thinking, this is going to be a 20-minute, hi, Jimmy, goodbye, not even close.
1: So, So some context matters, right? So it's 2019 when I'm meeting him. And it, it would be impressive enough for him to take three hours to talk and to answer questions and to just, you know, allow me to grill him a little bit. It's all the more impressive, and I write about this uh, from the opening, you know, the day before we met, he had had, I think, had like been forced to lay off like a 10th of the workforce at SpaceX. And the week before that, he had actually like had to oversee layoffs at Tesla and as anybody who's been in that position knows, like, that's a, it's not just difficult. It's like emotionally very draining to do that. And so I really was like, I had actually, I was supposed to meet him on a Friday. Um, so we met on a Saturday, but I was supposed to meet him on a Friday. And I had sort of booked the flight out and really anticipated, like, given what his life is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be offended if he needs to cancel or push back or whatever. I mean, he's like running two companies, one of which is public and, they did have to cancel that Friday, but the person who, who helped set it up said, hey, why don't you, you know, we could probably find a way to squeeze an hour in on, on Saturday and then you can get what you need. And I was like, fine. And like still fully expecting, like, the, you know, hey, I'm sorry, we need to move this. And I and I think the, the right attitude if you're in that situation for somebody like me is, yeah, man, like you do you. <laughs> like I'm I'm asking you about something that happened 20 years ago. There are urgent things happening in your life now. I'm not gonna be the least offended if we need to move things around. Saturday rolls around. I show up anticipating, you know, maybe a half hour, like maybe, maybe. Right. Um, but he was so gracious. Like that's the word that comes to mind. He, not only did we take time, but we really went in like he, you know, he had stories to tell. I think that this was a part of his life that, you know, you don't really like reflect on these things, especially if you're in his position. And he was extraordinarily gracious with his time. Like, Set aside – and it wasn't like there were like people buzzing in and out, like distracting him. He was not on his phone. He was laser focused on me and on and, and exploring this period of his life and some of the early decisions that he made career-wise. So I was really – I was blown away by by a couple of things. One was just how gracious he was. Two is just that in spite of everything going on in his life, like he did not – Get distracted, waiver, like schedule fourteen meetings that conflicted. Like it, it really was like a Saturday afternoon chat, and I was also not exactly. I was there to ask him about something that was so you know twenty years old, but he still took the time to do it. So from my perspective, it was I was like impressed by his graciousness and also really grateful for the time. Um, the other thing I think, and this is I'm, I'm, you're you're one of the only people that actually asked me about this particular thing. He. Is not someone who reads from scripts. By that, I mean that, you know, I have found that like with certain people, like when they have to answer certain questions, if I've watched the 10th YouTube video on a specific answer, I kind of know what they're about to say, right? And I had watched everything that he had said about PayPal, but he was thinking out loud when he was with me for that chunk of time. And I found that to be like – and now, I suppose if you work for him, that might be like a bit tricky. Like if you're like, well, somebody in his corporate, you know, kind of structure or hierarchy or a little worried, your CEO is kind of thinking out loud. Maybe he shouldn't. But for me, it was actually really powerful. Like we, it wasn't, it wasn't that I would ask a question and he had some like canned three bullet point answer. He was funny and he was himself and he never like said like, you can't print that or there was none of that. He was actually remarkable for taking a question that I asked clearly thinking about it in the moment and then coming up with an answer and generally trying to bend in the direction of humor. Right. Um, and so from my perspective, like I actually found that he was refreshingly candid. And the reason I say that is I was also asking him about a moment that isn't the proudest moment in his career, but he had reflected on it and he had really thought through it and even thought through it live with me. Um, some of the different dimensions of it. So I found it to be a really impressive conversation. And I don't think that, you know, look, I, I think that it, it was surprising. Like I, ex- I expected like, you know, the polite 20 minutes, if that, because the guy's busy and he could be forgiven for that. Right. Um, for him to give me that much time right out of the gate, I thought was really generous. And, uh, and I was, I was grateful. It also helped fill in a lot of gaps in the story. He, the other thing that he did that was really important was he pointed me in the direction of other people I needed to interview. And I think that's something I should underline as well, that the Elon's a big part of this story. He's one of the co-founders of the company. But one of his most important things that he asked me to do, and he was right, you know, just from a storytelling perspective. Was he listed out five or six people where he was like, "You should really go talk to these people because they, you know, they deserve as much credit as anyone for building
0: the company." What makes what you're saying even more remarkable? This is coming from the person who got ousted from his own company. Yeah, that's right. And 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 so apparently has a short memory and he does not hold grudges. That is impressive. What you just shared.
1: I mean, I hope that's what people come away with. Uh, part- particularly in I that did. section of the book because I Just to give list- listeners some context You know, PayPal, he co-founds it He's ousted in a, in a famous palace Or infamous palace coup And what he does in the aftermath Is not, you know, burn the building down, right? He doesn't go after the new people who overthrew him He doesn't torch them in the press He doesn't do any one of the things That you presumably could do, right? He doesn't like, for example, he doesn't suddenly withdraw capital or like sell all of his equity at bargain basement. None of that. He doesn't do any of it. In fact, he stays on as a board member, he Supports does. the team sends out a note telling the rest of his team to support the team and then moves forward. And importantly, like moves on to do other things. It's something that's easy to miss about this period in his life, because what he does today is obviously so high profile and, and has so many different dimensions. I, I think that, you know, it's, 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 it, you have to write with some objectivity. Like I was always trying to just get at what what actually happened. But part of what was impressive in this moment, right now, I'm past the book, so I can editorialize a little. Is there is a remarkable degree of uh, of humility that it takes to say, okay, like I, what happened happened. I'm going to move on. I've learned from it. I know, you know, I know what the lessons are. But I'm going to go do other things.
0: Um, would that we could all be that way. We're going to come back to that transition in a minute. That's a very, very important part of the story. Uh, there was so much I did not know about PayPal. Uh, for example, uh, I didn't know did not know anything about the relationship or the time with the Palm Pilot. Did not know that. Uh, you probably knew the name, but Max Levchin. I, that name didn't ring a bell. Uh, I kind of knew David Sachs a little bit, but he ends up being a key player, product manager slash COO. Uh, the relationship, the love-hate relationship between them and uh, eBay. So I, I, I could just go on and on. So can I be nosy? What, before you started this big, massive project, what's the one thing is like... I did not know that. There's probably a lot of those ahas. What was your favorite aha that revealed itself as you started digging into this interesting story?
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, it's a really – that's a great question and a tough question because I think in the book, if people are surprised by the book, it's because I was surprised in writing it, right? So like if if people on every page are like, wow, I didn't know that, it's because every page that I wrote, I was like, wow, I didn't know that, Right? Um, it's not like I covered tech for 20 years and then dove into this. I came as a bit of an outsider. Um, I would say the most one of the mo- most surprising things is that even though we use PayPal today and it seems so simple to us and it's lasted for 20 plus years, I did not realize how close the company had come to almost going under at different moments and for different reasons, right? So So it's not that it almost went under once. It almost went under a bunch. Um, I don't think I had a pre- an, a, any kind of appreciation for how close those calls were. Um, I, I don't. By the way, I don't think anybody could. Like, I was in some cases the first person to ask certain questions, the first person to stumble on certain documents, the first person even crazy enough to do this project. But I don't think I fully appreciated. Like, they, it was a it was a close shave for a very long time, and that to me is the most surprising. And like readers have, I had one reader say to me, you know. This is a reader who currently works in a startup. And she said, it's just good to know that like the Titans had the same anxieties that I did, that my startup, that I'm going to wake up tomorrow and the startup's going to go under, right? Because she's like, I live with this every day. It's just good to know that Max Levchin and David Sachs and and these people kind of lived with that fear as well.
0: One of my biggest takeaways is, first of all, you had two companies. So you had the one that, Elon started X.com, and then you had Confinity. Did I say that correctly? That That's what Max Alepchin yeah, and and Peter Thiel, that they founded. Um, so you had these two that eventually come together to become one. But one of my takeaways is both of those organizations, they both start out with big ideas. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you still needed to have a product, <laughs> That could sell uh-huh. to the masses. Now, here's my takeaway. Now that I set that up, every company, every company needs a Reed Hoffman. Tell me if I'm interpreting this correctly. So, one of the products was, and by the way, I'm, I'm for for those who are listening, I'm holding up a cell phone and a Wi-Fi device <laughs> from uh, from um, from a certain cell phone provider. So they, the, the goal was to move money from one Palm Pilot to another. We're at lunch, $100 bill. Okay, I'm going to give you my $10. So I think it was Reed asked the question very innocently or maybe purposefully, what if someone doesn't bring their app or their, you know, their device? Oh, or the other question is, in that restaurant, how many people have a Palm Pilot? Is it 10% of them? So that, Reed Hoffman, and then of course, Max goes on to figure out, okay, someone left their device at home. Let's, let's program that into where they can just do it on the website. Voila, <laughs> PayPal. Uh, so my insight is, my insight, tell me if I'm interpreting this correctly. We need to read Hoffman's in our businesses. Uh, but number two, your product may not be the yeah. product you envisioned as you're coming over that big vision. Am I off the mark or in the ballpark?
1: No, no, you're you're on the mark. You're on the mark. Um, with the first one, I, I don't think there's a person in the world who would dispute that. Um, he at the time, so just to give reader uh, listeners context, you know, the company Confinity that's co-founded by Peter Thiel and Max Levchin, their big ambition is to make infrared money beaming a right. thing, right? Um, Palm Pilots are a huge device; they're all the rage. Business professionals have them they introduce an infrared port and max and peter look at that and say hey you know no one's really come up with a use case but a good use case would be what if you could have encrypted transact real transactions happening across the airwaves right it sounds natural to a- to our world where we have venmo we have cash app we have you know a, a host of these providers zelle um, It was a little different, you know, when you're talking about Palm Pilots, which have a ceiling, just given the total number of users is hovering around like 5 million at the time. There are a number of people who are truth telling to the team, right, which falls in love with its own technology, but there are, there's, there's truth tellers on the board. John Malloy and Pete Buell, who are some of the first outside money, are like, look, are you guys sure about this? David Sachs, a friend, a college friend of Peter Thiel's, who hasn't joined the company yet, says, "There's no way I'm joining the company unless you guys put a bullet in the palm pilot thing." Right? And then the the key one that's happening in the room, because he's a board member, is Reed Hoffman. And Reed, at a late night meeting in the summer of, uh, I believe it's yeah, it's the summer of ninety nine, says to Max, "Look, I I understand what you think the palm pilot technology could do." But what if someone leaves the Palm Pilot at home? Or what if someone forgets to download the app? How will it work even in vivo? Meaning if one person has a Palm Pilot, but the other person doesn't. And Max responds to that critique by saying, well, why don't we just create an email backup? Meaning that I could now email you, Mark, the money instead of you needing to bring your Palm Pilot or installing the app. So that concession Max Levchin's response to Reed's criticism is what leads to the first iteration of what becomes PayPal, right? And so I I think that the lessons are both accurate. The first lesson is you need to read Hoffman, meaning you need somebody in your company who is not who is not afraid to tell the CTO like, look, you got a big problem here, and I get that you're smart, and I get that you have a photographic memory, and I get that you can do all this, but it doesn't mean that you've developed a product. And then the second insight is is also key you know, there needs to be a resolute and rigorous focus on what users are actually doing with the thing you create, right? Like sort of not falling in love with your darlings, right? Not saying like, I've built this thing and everyone's going to love it. And that's why they're going to love it. And I think all companies have a, have some early version of this, right? Like most of these histories include, you sort of do X and then it turns out actually no users love Y. It's just so stark in, in this case because users embrace and adopt the email product and the, the Palm Island product, like it stagnates even after a year after launch. It's at the same total number of users.
0: We'll be right back. Money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? You, there, how do I want to start out this? Uh, there is about a two. And I, I'm probably exaggerating. There's probably a two billion to three billion dollar industry, consulting industry, of teaching businesses how to hire A players and keep A players. Hmm. PayPal just—it's like they obliterate that that that, that concept. <laughs> uh, l- let me read. Let me read something David Sachs says. Uh, We had to recruit our friends. No one else would come to work for us. Uh, Here's another quote in the same chapter. Hiring friends uh, risked a cloistered exclusionary monoculture and made it extremely hard to let people go. Um, I gather that if you're A, you're smart, you can work hard, and you're devoted, you're in. (laughs) Is, is, Is that kind of the... Oh, it, I guess you had to pass a test that Peter Thiel, uh, I, I, yeah. I would not be able to pass his, any of his tests, but to, to, what, what are your thoughts about these misfits or is that even a mislabel misfits, smart misfits? No, I think, I
1: think it, you know, it, it depends, I think on how you're, how you look at it. Right. So um, for, for context, Today the group of people who are PayPal alumni are in in some cases world famous right They have become known particularly within Silicon Valley circles as kind of like the the, the they're known you know their sort of popular moniker is the PayPal Mafia. But what they're really known for is, like, they, they're they the lead investors behind basically every technology app site. I mean, there's somebody affiliated with PayPal in almost every organization that's connected to technology that we know of, whether that's Facebook, Apple, Google, the bigs. And then also at all of the investment firms, you've got someone in this orbit, right, who's attached. Um one of the things I point out in the book, I hope I point out is when they started, no one would have suspected that they would have occupied those roles 20 years later. Um, But, and so, and one of the reasons is the internet boom by the, by 1998, 1999, you're sort of midway, maybe even three quarters of the way through the boom cycle. And there's just, there's the demand for engineers and for people in, in, in the internet is so strong PayPal is competing against firms that already have listings on stock exchanges. And so they end up being forced to hire people who are like not going to get hired anywhere else or who have limited offers, especially at the beginning. My my character – the characterization I'm about to give is probably for the first 20 to 25 employees at Confinity, which is Max and Peter's part of the company. They don't have much money. They don't have much clout. They're struggling to get press. Their product is about money beaming through Palm Pilots. Like, it's not, you know, they're not like, like the internet's promising revolution and they're saying, hey, well, you could send a few shekels between, to, between these devices, right? Um, and so, th- in that context, the people they hire have to be their friends. Now, here's the thing the friends of Max Legend and Peter Thiel happen to be extraordinarily talented, yes. extraordinarily smart. You know that that bar in a in a way that the bar it's almost like it's harder to become their friend than it is to work for them, right? Because the bar for friendship is so high when you are at the level that they are at uh, intellectually and otherwise, and their interests are so specific. You know, like um, one of the things I discovered in doing this is just like they're they're just very devoted to a like to like lives of the mind. Like they read a lot. They they they're really kind of very well versed in a lot of different subjects. And and I think that bar for friendship is so high that when they hired their friends, you were hiring people like David Sachs, right? Right? And when Max Lutton hiring his friends, he's hiring people like Russ Simmons who goes on to co-found Yelp. Um, And and so there's a way in which – the 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 bar of friendship was actually like a really useful barometer for also hiring good people. But here's here's the important thing. That wasn't deliberate. It was accidental, right? Meaning they just had – like David Sachs' quote is spot on. They had to hire people they knew because no one else would come to work for them. And it wasn't like there was a bum's rush trying to get in. That does change later when the bus starts and they're one of the only companies left standing. Like what I had heard from recruiters and others who worked there is that in 2001 and 2002, you, they had more of the kind of pick of the litter problem, right? There were so many people applying that they, had, they were able to be more selective, but early on, I mean, it is catch as catch can, as far as our hiring goes. And look, it all worked out. I, and I think there's a lot of reasons why you, you could argue why it worked out, but I think the early group of people are people who are very, very close to them. Here's the key insight from it for people who are hiring. One of the people who I interviewed is a gentleman – he's not world famous. His name is David Wallace. David Wallace was a journalist. He came on to do customer service. He was a friend of Peter's from Stanford. Peter kind of talks him into joining the company. He's a little reluctant, but he's like, I don't want to be in journalism. So this seems like as good a thing, way to pass a little while as I can. And he says, you know, if I had gone into a culture where I didn't know anyone, I would not have felt comfortable speaking up. I would have – he's like he's a pretty mild-mannered personality. He's not one of these, you know, people who's out on CNBC like doing things. He he said one of the things about being a friend was that we could – we felt like we had the ability to speak up, right? Like I felt like I had the ability to just say to Peter like, no, you're wrong and here's why you're wrong. Um I call it in the book kind of hiring for trust because that's what someone else described it as when I when I interviewed them. That it's a very hard thing to get right, but it's an interesting way to think about hiring. Right? It's like a different mode of thinking about hiring um, because it was a it was a really like a trust based culture. They would give junior level employees on day one enormous leeway, um, and I, it it certainly made me think twice about those sorts of decisions.
0: Did David Wallace did he work in Omaha? He said customer service. One of my favorite feel-good parts in the book is that customer service uh, group that was you're smiling that was uh, uh created uh it was is it Omaha, Nebraska? Uh, so when you mentioned David, yeah, it's Omaha. Uh, it's Omaha that, that part was I loved that part of the book. Excellent.
1: Yeah, it, it it so he did not work in Omaha, but the Omaha piece is really important because it's actually like they're the, they're one of the unsung hero groups in this whole story. Agree that um, the, the, the the twenty seconds on it is when you create a payment system and it becomes hugely successful. You also invite a whole bunch of customer service complaints and a lot of problems, and you you need humans to, to at the time to sort through those problems. And they were having a really hard time f- figuring that out. Omaha became a place where, in a low cost way, with really good phone networks and fiber networks, the company could have successful customer service. And you know, there's if there were a dozen people who pointed out to me like. Omaha saved the company's bacon, right? It made it possible for the company to grow while still managing this torrent of customer compliance.
0: Sorry for that sidebar. I, when, when you said David Wallace yeah. and customer service, I, I couldn't help it. Again, that that was a, I love that part of the book. Staying on the theme of people, a couple more takeaways. Uh, there, are, So there are really three CEOs you had, or at least three of the prominent CEOs, Sid so Musk, uh, Peter Thiel. And a guy in the middle, Bill Bill Harris, but one of the takeaways is sometimes in a startup, your best CEO is the reluctant CEO. Peter Thiel is a was a reluctant CEO. Looking back, can you say at the time he may not like have liked administration, but he 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 nailed it right. That's what I got out of the book.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, Again, I think it would, you know, I had so many of these conversations with employees that I think it would depend on who you were talking to, right? Um, even board members, frankly, were like, we were a little nervous that Peter wasn't going to be the right CEO, right? And I think even Peter, I mean, you know, and candidly, like he, he himself said to me, like, look, I just, I'm not someone who wants to like run a big organization in that way, right? Meaning doing this sort of, things that a CEO, when a company scales past, let's say five to 10 people, the CEO job reconfigures itself. Right. Um, so he, and, and it was funny because there was a board member who really likes Peter. They've done things together after, uh, who Tim Hurt, who said to me, like, Peter be the first to admit all this, like that. He's not really, this isn't his thing. Right. Um, and he resigns. I mean, there was a joke. Somebody said that there's some joke where it was like, Peter Thiel is the only person who have quit PayPal three times or something. Uh, it's not a joke I included in the book, but there's somebody, I think one of his friends said that, like, and I, and I think by the way, that that plays to his personality. Like the thing that he does, that's really important. And the reason that I think the, maybe it's not the reluctant CEO archetype that fits, but the CEO archetype that I think do does fit. So his gift is talent spotting. Um, so, the, the, the great sort of thing about PayPal is – or the, the thing that I think makes it par- – partially makes a company successful is they just have an insane roster of just ridiculously intelligent, talented people. I can tell you that at almost – with almost every interview I did for this book and I did t- over 200, I was a little scared. <laughs> like I was a little scared going into every interview because the people I, re- I was interviewing – I mean, they had so much horsepower. They were so knowledgeable. They had done so many different things. You know, I had people, I was interviewing people who report directly or run the biggest companies in the world. A great many of them were recruited by Peter, or they were recruited into a culture in which Peter and Max set the tone for who was going to be a part of the culture. The, this, the, if there is a secret sauce, it is that one company was able to warehouse Reed Hoffman, Amy Clement, you know, David Sachs. Elon, Peter, right. Max Lepchin, the founders of YouTube, the founder, I mean, you could go on and on. That, that I think there's, there's at least partial credit for that that should go to Peter. It's not the totality of the credit because to be clear, one of the underreported stories within this big story is that Elon is hugely responsible for recruiting people like Roloff Botha, who today runs Sequoia Capital, right? Um, he's responsible for like recruiting Jeremy Stalpman, who was the other co-founder of Yelp. But a big, Peter has this nose for talent and it's proven true obviously in his life as an investor. But it's one of the things that actually people miss about this kind of group is that a great many of them were there because Peter sought them out and then brought them in. By the way, you can say that right from the jump because he's the person who meets Max Levchin and says, Max, I'm going to invest in you. Here's a hundred thousand dollar bridge loan. You get going. Right. Um, so he's a reluctant CEO, but he has, the, the maybe one quality that CEOs really need, which is the ability to identify top players and then kind of convince them to, to join the
0: ship. Now he had another great quality too, if I can add it. And he could have done this as a board member or just as an investor, but he knew how to get money and not just how, but his timing even seemed spot on. Uh, it, it's almost like, hey, we need this now. And and then all of a sudden we have this dot com crash. So he he had tremendous insight. There's one part in the book. If if you if you ever write fiction, you need to take one of the ideas in this book where <laughs> uh, he gets a hundred million dollars and it's like yeah. wait a minute. Instead of investing this, let's just go start shorting the markets and we can probably make more money shorting the market than we can with PayPal over the next five to, to ten years. But I think he had a board member that said, I'll quit if you do that. But he he did have a gift for, uh, for money, kind of had a a Midas touch there. Uh, There's someone who's been, and I'm using your words, Jimmy, uh, one of the people that have been, I guess, written out of the history of PayPal and that's Bill Harris. But he did Mm -hmm. bring some things to the table that I feel like were important. Can, can we give him some couple of minutes of, of, of time? Yeah. Some airtime. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, he's the, he's the CEO of X.com, which is Elon's half of the company. So right. up to this point, we've been talking a lot about Confinity, which is the company that right. uh, Max and Peter start that creates the PayPal product. X.com has a basically identical product, uh, but they have a much bigger product offering. They recruit uh, Bill Harris, who's, who's a, a kind of much heralded, CEO of Intuit and bring him aboard. It's a big coup for them to bring him on board, and it's not you know it's 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 rocky. It's rocky. This I mean, the whole story is rocky. It's like four years of of tension and drama. Um, and Bill was also very candid with me. Really gracious. Gave me a ton of time. The thing that Bill Harris has never really appropriately gotten credit for is the fusion of the two companies, right? Um, because he stakes a lot on it. I mean, he sort of like he stakes everything on it. And and on the confinity side, you know, they're nervous. they are competing against this guy. His name is Elon Musk. He's had a successful exit. He's really aggressive. He's really smart. They're backed by Sequoia. You know, they feel like they're fighting, fighting Goliath. And 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 Bill Harris says, look, you know, we're not gonna win unless these two companies that are fighting over email payment market share are actually one company, and he stakes everything on it. And I, I think of it as as the reason that he's he, you know. It's sort of like, I hope that the world gives him, uh, at least a measure of credit for taking a gamble and essentially forcing the two companies to merge. He is somebody who brings experience to that, to that group. Um, and it, it's a critical, very, very hard moment. Uh, and it obviously, you know, he's, he's sort of uh, one of, one of the palace coups oust him just weeks after that decision. Um, but it is a, it's a, I I wanted to make sure to get his perspective because I think that it had never really been talked about at at this kind of length. And I feel like, look, the history could have been really, really different if he had not kind of like, you know, sort of forced this merger to to come to a close. Um, I, I, you know, all of this needs to be put into context like – the, the Nasdaq starts a collapse in early 2000 that, you know, just, I mean, it is somebody described it in the book as the killing fields, right? They started to see like Palo Alto storefronts get boarded up. Um, money just drains out of the valley. So everything in the book that seems like it's like intense or heated. There's a reason it is. It's because the context is also intense and heated. You have these high flying dot coms that are buying million dollar Super Bowl ads that are bankrupt eight months later, and you know in that context, like every decision is kind of going to become invested with this kind of emotion.
0: I bet. Say, like at a toxic Google, this could be an interesting topic. Do we get a professional CEO, or do you keep using the the startup founder as the CEO? And so the the, the mm-hmm. it's an interesting story. So you got Bill Harris versus like an Elon or a Peter Thiel, or someone in between. So again, I I like that dynamic, uh, in the book. Yeah, I want to move on. I want we've already talked about some of the the, the product itself. Uh, we talked a little bit about the the Palm Pilot. Joe Coulomb is someone I just read about this past year. Uh, Patty Civiletti, we just had her on the show. She wrote the book *Becoming Trader Joe*. Uh, Joe Colome has a chapter called "Hairballs," and I love that chapter. Uh, hairballs being hmm. something that's undesirable that that's going to come to it's it's going to happen. It'd be like having you're sitting on a thorn in a saddle on a horse for about twenty five miles. Uh, uh-huh. It's very uncomfortable. You can deal with it. It's uncomfortable. Finally, you get off. You pull it out of your jeans or whatever. So one of the hairballs for, I in mean, my term, one of the hairballs for PayPal was fraud. Uh, in fact, one of the first yeah. one of the first acts of priority for Peter Thiel after Elon left, uh, fraud, anti fraud, fraud prevention is going to be huge on our list. Uh, this turned out to be this turned out to be really a strength for uh, PayPal. What are some of the things that you enjoyed writing about? And by the way, you brought you brought in a story uh, from two guys from I believe Russia uh, who were lured to yeah. the states, who eventually uh, got <laughs> caught, were incarcerated. Uh, so I, by the way, you, you took me on a rabbit trail. I had to go look them up, and I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> going to go to write the book. I'm going to write read the the book. Uh, I think All it's right. called The Lure, or I think that's it. Yeah, The Lure.
1: The Lure, right?
0: So fraud, yeah,
1: you know it's 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 a um it's one of the parts of the story that intrigued me the most because, well, for a few reasons. One is, you know, none of these players anticipated that when they were building a payments mechanism, that they would actually be defrauded, right? So, so it's actually like it's it's a it's an interesting. I've never really thought about it this way, but they kind of began with some innocence, right? I had multiple people actually tell me the the phrase Elon thinks that people are fundamentally good, um, right? So he never really like he's like well, like I actually I had this person I didn't use this in the book, but somebody I think who was involved in the finance team was like, you know, he's like we went in one day and we said to Elon like well people might might like have defaults on their balances. Like they might spend money they don't have. And, and I guess his description of, he was like, Elon was actually like surprised that someone would do that. Like, really? Like that's like, you know, so there was a sort of innocence about that approach. Then on the, the Peter Mac side, Peter will often joke about how when they called the company PayPal because it had a friendly name, he was like, oh, well, we're not going to have any of these, you know, chargeback problems or any of these like balance sheet problems that right. other companies have because people are just going to be nice and they're going to like be honest, right? And I don't think they're they're I don't I think some of that is is storytelling from twenty years hence that has a little bit of a Pollyanna quality to it, but I actually don't think it's too far off the mark. Like they made multiple decisions at multiple moments that would have led one to believe that they weren't super worried about fraud. Now here's the reality of it: fraud hit them in the face real fast, right? So at the beginning, what they're doing to goose the payment network is they're giving away ten dollars. If I if I sign up, I get ten bucks, and if you referred me, you get ten bucks. And that is a recipe for making sure every college student in America used his PayPal to earn beer money, right? And so you have this like intense number of people. Like I had this guy tell me, he's like, you wouldn't believe the number of checkbook, checkbooks that we printed that were headed to Elvis Presley, right? Because they like people would just sign up with fake names and fake emails just to get like a, you know $10 and then 10 and then 10 more, right? To the tune of thousands of dollars. So call that sort of like garden variety fraud that you could manage just by kind of, raising your gate from you know five feet to seven feet or whatever but then when you actually have a successful payment system you deal with more sophisticated actors including many who are based abroad who are looking at what is at the moment like you know in 1999 2000 2001 this is the wild West like, Americans aren't even – like there's so few Americans even doing online transactions, let alone any kind of like safeguards and CAPTCHA systems and fraud prevention and an ability for you to even call your bank and talk to them about this stuff. There's no case law, right? So what I found interesting about the fraud story is, OK – It's actually a real threat. So the thing that I hope people come away with is recognizing like, wow, this thing could have killed the company. They at one point are burning $12.5 million a month. They have roughly $50 to $60 million in the bank. That's four to five months of runway. And that's if you're being generous, right? Uh, Because you're still growing, like you're you're still a growing enterprise. So the timeline might actually shrink. And so much of that money is being lost to chargebacks, fraud, people having – like like people were setting up fictitious websites. People were doing dummy account things. And Visa and MasterCard are going to make sure that PayPal is the one that's held Respond. They're the intermediary. They're the master merchant, right? You have a series of people on this team who don't respond to this by throwing up their hands. What they actually do is they dive in and they solve it at different levels. There's the human level. PayPal, by my research, is like one of the first – Uh, They have one of the most – personally one of the most advanced, one of the first like digital fraud fighting teams where the human beings are like kind of like these detectives like going in, and I interviewed a few of these people going and finding out who the bad actors are and then bringing to the attention of law enforcement. PayPal is also the place where a lot of our tools that we take for granted today to fight fraud are actually developed. So – for everybody who's listening, who's ever been annoyed at having to prove that you're a human being or like having to find a bunch of fire trucks or stoplights or fire hydrants or ships or whatever, bicycles, uh, PayPal developed the cap that they commercialized that capture technology. Wow. It had actually been invented, but they didn't know it had been invented by Carnegie Mellon. They invented it on their own. And then, com- and then it was obviously the first commercial application, but it is a test to prove that you are not a robot creating a fake PayPal account to get 10 bucks, <laughs> right? So they have to develop digital tools. In addition to these human fraud analysts, they also have to, by the way, convince the government that this is important. So they're calling, I, I had a fraud fighter, Melanie Cervantes. And Melanie said to me, you know, we would call up us attorneys and they'd have no idea who we were. They'd have no idea what digital fraud was. They were like, you know, and particularly at the local state and local level, she was like, "It was hard." She said, "We had to tell them, here's the scam that's being run against one of your constituents or somebody that's in your district or whatever. We know that it's happening. It's it's like right now." And I remember my conversations with Elon and my conversations with the fraud fighters. You could still sense the frustration that they felt wow. that the government wasn't clued in on. On this, like actually it was my there's a the chapter title I gave to one of the chapters is called Crime in Progress. Yes. And be, because you know, because you because you were so nice in reaching out and taking time to read the book, I'll tell you, Crime in Progress is part of a joke that, that Elon said when I was interviewing him, he was like, he was explaining how like they had found a fraud and let the government know. And they the government said, well, we're gonna have to do months of work to figure out where this guy is. And he's like, No, 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 we have his info. Here it is. Crime in progress, crime in progress, right? And I can still sense on the fraud analyst side too, this frustration. So they are pioneers in fraud fighting. It is the thing that could have killed the company. It ends up actually being the thing that, that really what PayPal is, is a, a, at least the way Max Levchen describes it. He said, look, what it really is, is a complex data gathering operation that has an email money, you know, kind of component. And what we're really good at is knowing, like, you're good for this, or you are who you say you are, or you're not a fraudster that's based in Russia. Like, we, that company got very, very good at that. And actually, that is the reason that PayPal survived, but the dozen or so other payment systems around who were created at the time didn't, right? Because even Elon and Max, by the way, this is interesting about them, both of them are, they, they freely admit, they're like, look, emailing money is not that complex to build, what is really hard to do right is fighting fraud and making sure that you don't get taken under.
0: Great point. Now, I want to make sure we can squeeze in the IPO. And by the way, the epilogue in the book is, that, that's, that's worth the price of admission, by the way, the, the <laughs> epilogue, and I can't wait to ask you about it. But there's a big part of the book, I'd say at least about halfway, maybe 40% into the book, eBay and Bill Point are critical players uh, in this book, love-hate relationship. One needed the other. One didn't think they needed the other. Maybe both didn't think they needed the other. What is an interesting relationship between eBay and PayPal before uh, the acquisition? Do you learn anything new? Any 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 insights before you started working on that research? Yeah, you know, it,
1: it's interesting. I think a lot of what's what's what I wrote is new because I was I was one of the folks to go ask the people who were kind of closest to the action, right? So I, I interviewed this gentleman named Rob Chestnut, who is an attorney at eBay. And so, you know, I thought I was like, okay, you take a step back. For for listeners who haven't read the book, the place where PayPal takes off is on this auction website called eBay. When PayPal is created, eBay is a publicly traded company and its founder, Piero Midyar, is a, is a billionaire a couple times over, right? They've had their success. They're still growing like crazy, though, because people think auction-based commerce is the future of e-commerce. There's a time when people are like, oh, like fixed price retailing's dead. It's all gonna be like auction-based. Look at how successful eBay is. And amid in the middle of the dot-com boom, eBay is actually thriving. <laughs> like, like, I'm sorry, in the middle of the dot-com bust, eBay is still thriving. They're growing, they've got really fat operating margins. And so I I so then I was like, okay, PayPal comes onto the scene. They essentially commandeer eBay's cash register. They become the de facto payment system for all these eBay buyers and sellers. But that's really weird, right? It would be like if if we shopped at Amazon and the, the payment system wasn't owned by Amazon. It would feel so weird to us. Good but point. at the time, it didn't feel weird at all because, because PayPal fixed a pain point for eBay buyers and sellers, right? And so it wasn't the case. You had unified systems. Now, here's the problem. If you own the cash registers at someone else's store, the person who owns that store is going to be understandably frustrated about that. It's not like a good situation to be in on either side, right? I thought that only telling the story from the PayPal perspective would have left it one sided. So I interviewed a few of the folks who were involved at eBay, including Rob Chestnut, who is in this interesting role where he has to basically like be a diplomat and like diffuse all these crises. Um, the complexity of that relationship is really interesting because I think, and this is just like, I'm kind of thinking out loud now, you know, on the PayPal side, they feel like they are, you know, they feel like they're the scrappy, we're in March Madness. So they're like the 15 seed that's taken on the first seed, right? They're, they're, they're that. They're the, they're the scrappy underdogs and they're taking on big bad eBay, right? On the eBay side, if you're really doing an honest accounting of it, what they're saying is, look, PayPal is the one that's going to endure all the fraud problems. They're going to endure all the difficulty of having to figure this out. And then we'll we'll get to acquiring them eventually, right? So in a way, like I know there's a lot of criticism, particularly from the PayPal people, about the way all that was handled and why wasn't eBay innovative enough and all of that sort of stuff. But if you look at it from like a long arc of history, you know, PayPal had to endure essentially four years of grief, and then eBay did end up acquiring them, and then eBay spun them out ten years later. I'm sorry, not ten, uh, thirteen years later, and everybody did fine, right? Um That is a big part of this story. And I think there are some big lessons about platforms, meaning like what happens if a platform isn't doing one specific thing and can you be the person that fixes that problem? There's also lessons about innovation. No one on PayPal's team had built a company in order to become like the premier eBay payment system. That's like the, you know, that's not at all close to what they wanted to do, but it's where they find their, their use case. The last piece of it that's crucially important once these companies figure out, meaning x.com and Gavinity, once they figure out that eBay is the place where they are thriving, they become obsessed with being successful there. So they are actually one step ahead of eBay at all times. They send out pay, like, that I had uh, someone describe to me, he said, we got so good at this that once an auction closed, the PayPal payment email would arrive before the eBay auction email sometimes, right? So you'd actually find out that you won or that your item sold because we got you the PayPal notification. That's how obsessed we were with like getting on the jump. And so there's a lot in there and it's a really complex relationship. And I hope I told both sides pretty fairly, but I think of it as actually like also one of the moments that, that it's just so dramatic. Cause they're just adding each other's throats for years.
0: I came across some of the PayPal people. I, I was trying to put myself in their shoes. I think they saw, again, I'm, I'm maybe reading between the lines and you're smiling. Uh, they maybe viewed eBay as stuffy, <laughs> stodgy, sterile, a little stoic, So now the question I have, has PayPal become that a little bit now that they're a grown-up company more than 20 years old?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, like, the the truth is, I don't know because I didn't study it, right? So I think that the authors have to be really careful speaking out of school about stuff. Right. I can tell you a lot about PayPal from 1998, when it was not what it became, to 2002 and a little bit after and I know about the lives of the people that helped to create it during that period, again, as best as I can. I don't think I'm in a position to talk about modern PayPal because I didn't spend years, like, assessing it. There, It's grown considerably. It's in 190-plus countries. Um, it owns Venmo, which sort of satisfies the original vision of the money beaming, right? Um, but I would – I have zero – real expertise about whether that is a, a fintech uh, darling Cinderella story or whether it's, you know, I, I just I wouldn't be in a position to judge.
0: And Jimmy, that's an unfair question on my part. It's one of those curiosity <laughs> no, questions. Um, hey, I want, I, I want to go, it, it may not be a rabbit trail, but on the IPO, the, I, I just had to stop in my tracks. So Peter Thiel takes a small contingent to New York. They go to Smith Barney. Smith Barney Mm -hmm. just did not, they didn't get it. They, they just didn't understand, uh, Teal's upset. So they, they get to the airport and I think they're on the tarmac. They they don't get to take off immediately, Mm -hmm. but you end a sentence saying that it was September 10th, 2001. I got goosebumps. So the next day we know what happened. Uh, there's a, in the book, and I, I want to applaud you, uh, for doing this. And I hope you don't mind me stealing a little bit of your thunder. So I don't know if it was the next day or the day after that, Peter Thiel writes an email, a memo to the entire office. I'm not going to read it all, but one paragraph just strikes a chord. Personally, I believe, that the path out of this madness must involve an affirmation of what's best about the modern capitalist West, the belief in the dignity and worth of each human life, parenthetically, regardless of background or personal characteristics, and the related hope that a peaceful world community can be built around the free exchange of ideas, of services, and goods. I read that about three times. He finished it by saying our thoughts and prayers are with the victims of senseless, senseless violence in New York and Washington and throughout all of the world. Uh, this is a man of substance. Uh, I applaud it. I, again, thank you for including uh, this letter. Uh, and then they go on to go public about four, well, maybe in February the following year. But again, thank you for including yeah. that in the book. I, I think this is an important well, part. And by the, the way, you don't,
1: yeah, you don't need to. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the thanks, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't come in with an, a, an agenda or even really a set of instincts. I let the facts kind of take me where I needed to go. And I'll tell you why I included that letter. And I appreciate you pointing it out. You're the first person to really point it out and ask me about it. I interviewed a, a woman named Denise Aptekar. Uh, Denise is like one of the smartest people I interviewed by, by a mile. And she's intense and energetic and funny and just had like insight after insight. Honestly, I could have written a whole book just based on the things she told me over the series of a couple of interviews. And we talked for a long time. Um, one of the things that she said, cause I had mentioned her, I said, Hey, listen, you know, someone shared all these emails with me and I'm kind of going through them and there's thousands of pages and I'm just like sifting through paper every day. And at one point during our discussion, cause I asked people forget this team lived through September 11 together. If you're of a certain age, Everybody – and I suspect most people listening can remember exactly where they were. They can almost remember chapter and verse what that day was like. It was too searing. I was in high school and I can tell you everything that happened, right? Um, I remember the one question I was able to ask every person kind of almost regardless of like when they joined the company was – you know obviously if they joined after 9-11, I couldn't. But everyone pre-9-11, I could ask the question – Could you tell me what that experience of that was like for you? you It's a question that affected Elon and it affected the person who worked there for, you know, a year and a half. Like it affects everybody. When I asked her, she said, you know, one of the most things I've never forgotten is this note that Peter sent to the whole company after 9-11, putting the tragedy in context. And she said, and it was a really hard time for all of us. We were all really young. For many of us, this was the first such experience that we had had. You know, there were a number of team members that they didn't have. Um, that no one, no one on the team died in the attacks themselves, but people were a degree or two were removed. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a team member that was mid-flight, and he had a whole story. Right? There was a team member that was supposed to be on flight 93, named Rebecca Eisenberg. She had changed her booking like two days before the flight that crashed into that the that brave uh, passengers brought down in that Pennsylvania field. So. In the middle of all of that, you have a startup that is that is all the things a startup is, crazy, fast-growing, intense, all of it. And she said to me, she's like, if you can track down Peter's note, you should try to include it because it left a really powerful impression on me and on other people. And I I did find it. And in the way that that chapter goes, I felt like it was a, a place to include it because it was the CEO of the company reflecting on on the biggest event that most of these people had been through in, in that kind of event, right? together and kind of offering his thoughts about what the team needed to do and i had i had not seen this in any other context there were no like this wasn't a culture where like the ceo issued pronouncements from the top right like it was a really small team and it was aggressive and relatively flat so for him to do that was itself like a big deal So when I found it, I felt like it was appropriate to include it, but, but really because Denise guided me there, not because I made a judgment. I I tried whenever possible, Mark, just to give, you know, your listeners some additional color. Like I really tried to, to listen to what people who lived this experience told me and then use that to make my decisions. Cause I find that like, if you put your thumb on the scale as an author, like, well then, then like, what's the point of doing the book, right? Like, it's like, that's not actually like an accurate telling of history, um, that that doesn't mean I wrote like you know it's not it's not I didn't write in a lawyerly way it's written so that people enjoy the the book but that was that that September 11th note is because of Denise and her reflections on what September 11th had meant to her and how much that note
0: meant to her. If you ever see Denise, tell her thank you on my uh, behalf. So you've written this masterful book, and then we get to the epilogue. So I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a section about <laughs> the PayPal mafia and where they went. And I'm thinking this guy knows how to write. He certainly knows how to research. So I get into the first couple of ch- uh, paragraphs of the epilogue, and I'm thinking, where's he going with this? And then the light mm-hmm. starts to come on because of certain pictures in a gel cell. I just want to, and I don't know if I'll I'll leave it up to you because uh, we want to sell some books for you. But I just want to say the epilogue <laughs> was I, I I'm ready to hug these guys. Uh, that are mentioned in. Uh, I have interviewed uh, uh, a book called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison by Jeff Smith. Uh, He's a he's a well-known politician, at least about 20 years ago, who went to prison for one year for stupid, foolish reasons. Uh, He admitted his wrong, but he wrote about his one year of incarceration. I I love the documentary. uh, I think it's College Behind Bars, which is phenomenal. So then I read this epilogue with that uh with a little bit of a history. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is so, so good and healthy and motivating and inspiring. And I'm running out of superlatives for your epilogue. I just want to say, <laughs> sir, well done. You 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 nailed the epilogue. Oh, thank you. Did you was thank that you, was that yeah, an act you know- was that accidental? Or was did you know, uh, did that just kind of come to you like this, this is a no. fitting ending?
1: It, You know what it was? So, yeah. So for, for listeners to get just a, a, a the 20 seconds of context, I didn't know how to end the book. Right. So I'm, I'm sort of like writing the history and trying to think about what do you do with this? Because these people have gone on to do such great things. But you can't do the abbreviated history in 10 pages of just SpaceX or Tesla or Yelp or YouTube or any of the things they've been involved in. There's just too much. So then I start looking abroad and I start to look at, okay, well, what about these companies that go public like in places like Kenya or India or Canada or in Europe – and they all develop their own version of the PayPal mafia. Like there's like this little mafia. The mafia word gets attached to any startup that goes public abroad and then somebody wants to recreate it. There's a company called Copacopo in East, in East Africa. When they go public, the founders of the company explicitly talk about wanting to create, you know, what they call the PayPal mafia of East Africa. So that's what they call the Copacopo mafia. So that happens again and again. I'm thinking maybe that's a directional going. Then I discover this story of these two prisoners, um, two young African American men who are incarcerated when they are 16 or 17 years old in Baltimore, and they get inspired by the PayPal mafia, and I couldn't believe it. Like I and I really and when I I mean that literally. Like when I first spoke to both of them, their names are Chris uh, Wilson and Stephen Edwards. I said. You guys like I'm calling BS. <laughs> like I can gather that you were like inspired by God or inspired by, you know, any number of things, but to be inspired by these tech entrepreneurs who live on a continent away from you when you're serving life sentences in prison is truly like it's unbelievable to me. So you have to you have to pop, pass a really high bar for me to believe this. But boy, they didn't just pass the bar, they cleared it. What they had done is in 2007 they got a copy of This Fortune magazine article where some of the PayPal founders are depicted in mafioso garb. They both read this article and they look – and they sort of – one looks to the other and says, this is how we have to do it. And what they meant by that is a a few things that are actually like surprised me. One was they, they saw in that article what a positive network could be like. So they had networks in their neighborhoods too, but those networks were gangs. Right. And they dealt money or they they dealt drugs, they laundered money, et cetera. This was an example of a network where you invest in each other's businesses or you help set each other up for different things. Right. So it was a different kind of network. That was one lesson. The second lesson, and this is key, and this is why I thought it was a good way to end the book. Stephen Edwards says to me, Look, when you are in prison, even if you get out with a life sentence, you have a, that's a long shot to begin with. I mean, you got no, you know, you have limited chance. But let's say you get out what the world expects is that you're going to work at McDonald's you might have some handouts from some charities you might you know have some friends you rely on but but as he puts it don't expect to live like the rest of us who weren't in prison he says entrepreneurship and building businesses is the only place where there's no ceiling on my success where the thing that I, the value that I will get back is the value that I put out and it was a really powerful example and what's amazing about Chris Stephen isn't just that they got out of prison. It's that Stephen today is a software entrepreneur. Um, he has a, a, a he has he has patents to his name. He's built a really successful company. I believe he's starting a capital raise now. Um, Chris has built real estate businesses and now is an is a is an artist. Uh, he's written a book. He was on Trevor Noah. Um, he, I mean, he's done it all. Like the guy. Li- I mean, frankly, like the guy is is living a great life. Yeah. So. For, but but to take a step back, the principle was, okay, the world may tell us like we can't get certain jobs because we have to disclose a criminal record and we're going to get turned down. But if we build businesses, that's a way of creating value in the world. And they took this lesson and used it in prison actually. They built a mini business inside prison selling photographs of prisoners to their families. Uh, they They weren't able to keep the money. They donated it to the prison welfare fund. But I found that their knowledge of the PayPal story was uncanny. Like they had collected every scrap or article. Then they really blew me away when they told me that they taught the PayPal story in prison yes. to other inmates young, younger than them. So I, I at that point realized I was like, look, this is this – is some of the themes in the book can seem really abstract, or they can seem like they only apply to a couple of zip codes in Palo Alto. And words like innovation and entrepreneurship are so overused that they basically become drained of all meaning. But if if this story can find its way to, to the Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland, and inspire two basically kids, right? And, and by the way, they had the pictures of them on the wall. I mean, they collected every article. They knew everything. I said, well, then maybe that's how this book should end because that's what other people see in this story. It's not what I see necessarily. It's what other people saw in this story later, and in a place no one expected. That is the kind of backstory behind the epilogue. And I'm glad it, it like it. I'm glad you you notice it. I'm glad it it moves you because it moved me. And I was. I had my BS detector on full blast. Right? Like I, was, I was like, I was there. I was like, no, I, you know, I really, in some ways, I wanted them to tell me that it was just some shallow image that they had on their prison wall, but it wasn't. It was they actually went so much deeper than that.
0: I, my next book I'm reading is A Mind at Play, and I, I do want to reach out to him and, and interview him because I know it's going to be a great book. Hey, this is not your, your first book. Oh, his book. By the way, his book is called the master. His book is called the master plan. Oh, that's it. I. Why did I say a mind at play? Oh, that's, that's your. Book. You know what's what? that my my other book. Because yeah. I. Yeah, you're right. Thank we can you. Go back and. Yeah, thank you yeah. for clarifying that. Uh, so speaking of a mind at play, that is your what, your other book uh, on Claude Shannon. I mentioned to you before mm-hmm. uh, we hit record how I came to learn about Claude Shannon. It was through uh, Molly's Game, that book which I loved. So that led me to mm-hmm. reading Fortune's Formula, and I was not aware of of this right. particular book. So what what's the what's the what's the short blurb on uh, the Claude Shannon book? What will I learn when I read it later this spring?
1: Yeah, I would say that the takeaway from that book is the value of hobbies and of of the things that that we 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 treat in our lives as like the side hustles or the the things that we do just for fun can actually often be the source of great insight. So the thing about Claude Shannon is that, you know, he developed some of the world's first chess-playing computers. He's a juggler. He's a unicyclist. He builds new variations on the unicycle. Uh, he's also the founder of the field of information theory, uh, which is probably one of the most important contributions to 20th century thought that there is. And he did that on the side while working full-time, I think that sometimes we tend to regard play as unserious. His play was sort of serious play, and it led to some really breakthrough insights. But I I mostly hope people enjoy his life and like learning about it because he was just the most extraordinary person. And oh, I wanted to document that life, but you know, if you're going to start somewhere, start with the founders because I think more people will get something out of it. Yeah. But, um, but
0: a mind to play is, is not uh, not a bad read either. The founders is a fantastic book, Jimmy. Is there, is there another book in you? It, it, can I push the envelope a little bit and ask what's the next project or do you need some time to not even think about books for a while?
1: You know, I I did, I think uh, some listeners can appreciate like pandemic parenting is like the Olympics of parenting, right? Um, And between that and a book, I I admit to being more, I mean, I I can do a lot, but I admit to being a little fried. Um, I also know what these things take. Like they, they're such huge investments of time and energy and work. There are some things I'm interested in. I'm interested in nuclear technology and the kind of renaissance that it's having. I really got inspired by Chris and Stephen's story, something about criminal justice reform. I think Gerald Ford deserves some more attention. I mean, I think about these, I just think about the most random kind of things and then see what I can turn them into. But at the moment, I'm not, um, I haven't signed up for anything new. Um, Mostly just out of self-preservation and the desire to like want to, you know, think about what I do next before I commit to it.
0: We ask every guest this question. What are some of the books that you've loved over the years? Maybe some of the most impactful uh, books are there some now that's a hard question because when someone asks me that question i always have the perfect answer three days later uh but (laughs)
1: right exactly
0: but but are are there some books that just stand out that you just love that you love recommending uh maybe even gifting to others
1: yeah i oh it's hard because i read a ton um I am just about done with a book called The Splendid and the Vile, which became a big bestseller. That's a great and book. And it was by Eric Larson. Yes, I love his books. It was by Eric Larson, and I'm always, you know, I love him too. I'm always a little bit like, you know, sometimes things that are popular, I go in with a little bit of skepticism, right? Um, but this book, which is about Churchill's leadership, just as the, the Nazis start their bombing campaign of London, is really extraordinary. I would say that and then the other one um, – is I think that Brad Stone's book about Amazon is really exceptional. Yes. Uh the, the first one. I haven't read the recent one, but the Everything Store is really, really good. And it sort of shows you how that company came to be. And then the last one is you're you know, not as many readers will have read this, but I think they should. Candace Millard, M-I-L-L-A-R-D, is an absolutely breathtaking writer. She did a book on James Garfield. It's that is just the best. Um, yes, and you never think like James Garfield, he's not a pre, you know, no one's making musicals about James Garfield. Uh, like he's not Hamilton or Jefferson or Washington or whatever. But, but this book by Candace Millard is so good, and I, I, I recommend it to everybody because I think it's, a, it's, I believe it was her first book, and it was a, it's it's amazing. Um, and it, I, I, really would recommend that too.
0: Well, I cannot thank you enough. I took up a ton of your time, but this book and, and I was, I was no, worried because I've, I've observed some of your interviews and it's like, man, some of these interviewers, they're nailing it, they're killing it. And it's like, I, I feel like I'm going to bore Jimmy with my questions, but, uh, you, no, you, you,
1: asked, you asked about things that no one else asked.
0: You scratched the itch. And, and again, I highly recommend this. I'll just end with saying uh, I like two of Nick Bilton's books. And I, he, I don't know if he's written more than two. Mm-hmm. I, American Icon, I love that book. But he wrote a book, I think it's called Hatching Twitter. So when I, when I got mm-hmm. finished your book, I, for some reason, I thought of Nick's book. And Twitter, drama. Drama, drama, PayPal. Yeah, you had some of your people drama issues, but nothing, nothing like Twitter. And I'm just seeing two completely different startups. Uh, one that just kept tripping over itself over and over and PayPal, it didn't. Or if it did stumble, it kept getting right mm-hmm. back up. It's an interesting story of two different startups and how one just really prospered. And so again, your subject matter, Phenomenal. I use that word a lot. I'm trying to not use that word, but I just can't think of a better word to describe your work, uh, your research, and thank you for writing it, Jimmy.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for taking the the time to read it. And you know, it, it. I will say, it's like you spend years on these things, and with books, you don't. You know, you don't put out chapters before the thing debuts, so you never really know if you're going to strike sparks. So I'm glad to know that. You know, like you get to your hundredth press release and you're like, is anybody actually really going to be interested in this? I used to joke to my friends. I would say this feels like an elaborate stamp collection that only I am interested in. And like, I don't know if the rest of the world's actually going to be interested in this. So I'm glad to know that it works because I want people to to read it and to appreciate that there was a time when these people who are big figures now, you know, were just getting started too. Um all of us have that, right? We're all beginners in some, in some part of our lives, I hope. And I, it's interesting to see what it's like when Elon's a beginner or when Peter Thiel's a beginner. Uh, I found it interesting anyway. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host,
0: Mark Gandy. One of the best books I've read by an outsider on unicorn startups. This book is going to stand the test of time easily. The title again is The Founders, and it's not a book about Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Max Lupchin, or David Sachs, or other prominent players who made PayPal what it is today. It's about all of them and the many, many smaller stories behind the bigger story leading up to their IPO. Five stars all the way. And by the way, I'd love to hear your feedback about the epilogue. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark 4, for CFO Bookshelf.